forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. I'm Jessica Crispin. This podcast is made possible by its listeners and supporters, and I'd like to thank all of the recent new donors. It's greatly appreciated. If you would like to become a supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash public intellectual to contribute to the ongoing project of this podcast. There are bonus episodes, exclusive writings, the usual sort of Patreon things. Go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. It's worrying to me that some of the conversations I thought we were done with back in the 2016 election seem to be repeating themselves for 2020. As we move forward into a conversation, I'm hoping at some point, about what kind of society we actually want to live in and how politics can help create and manage that society, we keep getting stuck on these issues of identity, supporting candidates because they share our gender or sexuality. Etc. So I wanted to invite Ben Miller, one half of the Bad Gays podcast, to discuss his project, which is to uncover the darker side of gay history, to talk about the limits of identity politics. How did, I mean, if we're just going to jump right in there, how did uh, Bad Gays start? What was what was the, the idea behind doing it? So I guess it sort of started when I first met Hugh, um, who, Hugh Lemmy, uh, the, um, he's an English writer who lives in Barcelona, uh, who's the co-host and sort of co-instigator of the project. Um, and I met him almost by accident. I was in Barcelona about a year and a half ago for other reasons. And then a mutual friend of ours found out somehow that I was in Barcelona and sent me an incredibly overexcited series of Facebook messages saying like, you must meet this Ulemi person. You must meet this Ulemi person. He's going to be your new best friend. Like you must, you must, you must. And I guess he sent the same ones to Hugh. So Hugh and I were like, Michael really thinks we should know one another. We should have coffee or something. Um, And we went to have a coffee and what was supposed to be like an hour long coffee turned into a nine hour long conversation um, that then kind of continued uh, online uh, after I came back home to Berlin. And um, then a few months after that, Hugh started telling me about this idea that he had had for a podcast about kind of evil and complicated gay men. And I thought it was really cool. Um, And I spent several months basically desperately trying to figure out how to get Hugh to have me do it with him. And then without my having to do any evil plotting at all, he just brought me on board. I think wanting somebody who had a more traditional background in history than he does. Um, And so that's how it got started. And then we just started figuring out what a first season would look like, how we would put it together, what kind of stories we wanted to tell, how we would use the people that we had selected to tell interesting stories from different time periods and to open up um, a series of evolving themes that I think we both find 
compelling. I mean, I think what we think is interesting about the project is that we can, because these are stories that are so compelling on the surface level, uh, we can have a conversation about gay and queer stuff that is not at a 101 level. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, we try to pitch it so that anybody who's interested could listen and doesn't have to, you know, stand by through a lot of jargon or a lot of $5 words, but we aren't just trying to do, um, a kind of basic overview. We're trying to get in a little bit deeper and that's what I hope people have been finding interesting about it. I wanted to talk about your Andrew Sullivan episode. Um, I think your, your episode is the first time that I've maybe felt sympathetic, uh, to, to Mr. Sullivan, um, just sort of having his, uh, psychodrama, uh, all played out at the same time. I mean, it's, it's one thing to read a Sullivan piece and then your brain explodes and, you know, you're picking up pieces of your skull for eight days after you read one of his pieces. Um, but to kind of have this overview of his career and the, the sort of dominant ideas that he's presenting, which is that, um, you know, the, the primary one being why can't gay people behave themselves and just be like straight people, um, is really made me, yeah, a little bit sympathetic toward him, but without that feeling of, uh, of making excuses for him. Do you know what I'm saying? Like so often when we're, when we're dealing with, um, uh, putting somebody like that in a context, in a historical context or a psychological context, it's about excusing the behavior or uh, justifying it somehow. And I really liked that I felt sympathetic to him while also feeling satisfied and condemning him. Hmm. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. I mean, I think there's a reason why we always say evil and complicated when we're talking about the people that we profile. Um, and I think that, I mean, I think we tried to talk about this a bit in the episode of really understanding where some of these impulses come from. Um, and at the same time, trying to think about what it means to have politics which is basically to make choices about which of your feelings get kind of expressed and turned into actions and which ones you try to just sort of sit with and think about. Um, I mean, the point of the show is not just to kind of cancel people. Mm -hmm. um, the point is to think through how homosexuality or in some cases, homosexuality, you know, with a question mark at the end of it, with someone like uh, James the Sixth and First, um, mm -hmm. where you're talking about a time period where that word, it almost doesn't even make sense to use that word, but we're kind of doing it anyway, um, is to try to think about how that can be related to um, kind of being a bad person and having a bad influence on the world, which I think then opens up the ability to do the important thing, which is not just to say so-and-so is bad, so-and-so is bad, so-and-so is bad, but to think about kind of what the choices, whether political or ethical or 
choices of identification mm-hmm. um, are uh, that are available to all of us and how we choose them and what that choosing means in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not, I mean, we brought up in the Sullivan episode this kind of controversial thing that happened to him where his online barebacking profile was um, outed in a couple of magazine articles. And I hope the effect of doing that, and certainly the point of doing that, was not to, you know, point at Andrew Sullivan and laugh at the kind of sex that he's having, uh, but rather to think about what it means to have that kind of sex on the one hand, and then also simultaneously to be spreading conservative, moralizing misinformation about how HIV is transmitted um, in the context of also having been an active supporter of the politics that led to that disease, not having uh, any kind of adequate state response in either his home country, the UK, or in uh, his adopted country, the US. Um, And so thinking that through in that context is why we would bring something like that up as opposed to just saying, you know, lol, barebacking, raw muscle glutes. Um, Mm -hmm. That certainly wasn't the the intention of that at all. Right. So often when these sorts of things are outed, it's about exposing hypocrisy only, right? Or the sense of like um, uh, trying to uh, humiliate somebody that you disagree with as, as instead of sort of engaging with their issues. And that's what I appreciated about the episode was that I remember when that happened, when he was outed, um, and the glee in which that had been uh, greeted um, in a particularly homophobic sense from a lot of people on the left. Um, yeah, to put it in context of, of what he had been saying about, because, you know, as, as you pointed out in the in the episode, he had said that, um, didn't he say that if you have oral sex without a condom you're, and you have HIV, essentially that's your murderer or something yes, like that? Yes, he did yeah. say that. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, it, I, it seems like, uh, you know, the, the primary complaint of contemporary, uh, discourse is that it's not allowed to be complicated. Your episodes are very complicated and I like that. Thanks. Uh, we tried to make them complicated. Um, and we definitely thought a lot about how we framed details like that, um, Mm -hmm. to make sure that we weren't participating in kind of rituals of humiliation and shaming. Um, I mean, I think you said earlier, revealing something like this can be about talking about hypocrisy in the kind of context of someone's work, or it can be about humiliation. And we tried to stick to the hypocrisy and avoid the humiliation. Mm -hmm. Um, It's important to note also that actually a lot of gay journalists at the time, because of course we were going over um, a lot of writing that was done in 2001 when this story came to light. Um, A lot of gay journalists at the time, Richard Kim is the name that comes to mind now, uh, The Nation, um, were sort of careful to frame it in this way as well. So it's not that we're the first people ever to talk about this in Mm -hmm. that kind of a way. But, Mm -hmm. you know, definitely with all of our subjects i mean if i i think if any of them were uncomplicated they wouldn't be worth talking about um and even people who it's really hard to see what kind of 
good they put into the world, you can still hold them close enough to think about what they did more carefully. So what forms of evil then are sort of more interesting to you in this context of the podcast? I don't know if it's about forms of evil, but I think we thought a lot about how the people that we picked for our first episode fit into some pretty common um, kind of ideological containers um, that I think, or that we think rather, uh, reveal the some of the potential dangers of being a gay person in the world. I mean, the the question that Hugh and I kept coming to was what route out of heterosexuality do we take, right? Is it a route that is purely individual or is it a route that's collective? Is it a route that sees our struggle as being wrapped up in other people's or is it a route that sees us as being just kind of uh, hyper-individual actors and I've got mine and you've got yours um, or rather I've got mine and I don't care what happens to you. Um, I mean, some of the strands that came out that we thought were interesting was, or were rather, um, a certain kind of hypermasculinism, whether that related to uh, military expansion or whether that related to um, really sort of deeply misogynist fascist politics. Um, we had a strain that we found that we started calling the evil twink phenomenon, which um, actually a, a fan of ours on Twitter posited that as the kind of motivating force of all of human history, which I'm not sure if it's the only one, but I definitely think it is one. Um, but of these kind of beautiful, dissolute, usually upper class young men who just kind of toyed with people not really caring what happened. Um, and uh, we found in the kind of more contemporary sense, but then also um, in an upcoming episode that's going to be about a Weimar era magazine publisher who kind of started out his career um, denying that homosexuality was in any way political um, and ended his career with some pretty open, um, at least on paper, fascist collaborationism. Um, this maybe more modern or more polite strain of gay conservatism that maybe Andrew Sullivan is a part of. Um, that's the kind of just like other folks uh, argument. Um, we kept coming back to this question of the extent to which that is related to the kind of explicitly fascist hypermasculinist uh, thing. And we definitely think that relationship is complicated um, if it exists. I mean, it's not that it's not that um, Andrew Sullivan is the same as the subject of our first episode, Ernst Rehm, who's the sort of hyper-masculinist, like actual Nazi head of the Sturmabteilung, the SA, uh, which is the sort of pre-32 um, or pre sorry, pre-Night of the Long Knives, rather, um, Nazi street paramilitary group. It's not that Sullivan is the same as that. It's that when you talk about both of them and you talk about both of their lives and you talk about both of their politics and you talk about how their sexuality influenced how they thought about other things... Um, there starts to be an interesting dialogue between them that then maybe reveals something. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what hopefully we're doing. It's interesting in the sense, you know, I've, I've watched a certain conversation happening within feminist culture uh, 
feminist, I guess, can be in scare quotes there. But um, this idea of not wanting to talk about um, evil that exists within women um, or to even criticize, say, a, a woman politician or a businesswoman or whatever, because it's it bolsters um, our enemy, which is men, I guess. Um, but it seems like there's in every sort of civil rights pursuit or just sort of um, basic humanity pursuit with an identity, um, there's this sort of wanting to control your own story and so wanting to present it in a specific way, which is of dignity and, um, you know, showing your thigh at the right angle in the photo and whatever, like you want, you want, you want it to be <laughs> flattering um, because it's been presented in this sort of, you know, fl under fluorescent lighting uh, for such a long time by people who are allowed to tell your story for you. But then it becomes a reluctance to look at the dark side of things, um, to look at evil that exists within a specific community or identity or whatever. Um, so have you received any of that or have you seen that in the, in, you know, your, uh, historical wanderings of this sort of, no, we're fine. We're great. We're, we're always, we're always super on top of everything and smart and pretty. Hmm. We haven't gotten any, uh, direct feedback of that nature yet, although I assume it's coming. Um, and we think we were expecting more of it than we have gotten. Um, but I mean, I think the dangers of the gay version of that, um, of that discourse that you were just talking about have become to me at least only more clear in the past couple months, like since we've recorded the podcast. I mean, the thing that really jumps out to me is the emergence and kind of explosion of the presidential candidate in the U.S., Pete Buttigieg, yep. who to me is just kind of a transparent asshole. I mean, he's offering nothing at all in the way of a political solution to any of the many, many problems of the kind of apocalyptic racial capitalism that we live under. Um, and yet has kind of exploded in popularity, at least partly due to the fact that he can eloquently repeat kind of Andrew Sullivan-like mm -hmm. lines about his own kind of gay identity. And I really, I mean, many people, people whose work I really respect, people whose thinking I respect on a lot of uh, subjects, uh, and these are mostly gay and queer people, they're mostly gay men, to be honest, um, are really responding to him in a way that I find completely mystifying. I mean, I look at things that people say about this guy and I wonder what planet they spend most of their time on. And I don't mean that as a quip. I mean, I'm just genuinely like mystified that they can see anything in him. Mm -hmm. um, and I think part of that uh, does point to the risk of a community kind of only wanting to put its best face forward. Um, and then I think for queer people, there's also the question of what our quote unquote best face has been. I mean, I think the word dignity you used is really interesting. 
Um, and I know you didn't mean it in this way, but I just want to riff on it for a little bit. Sure. So like dignity is the word that Anthony Kennedy, who's a conservative Catholic Reagan appointee justice, uses over and over again in Obergefell, which is the decision at the Supreme Court that um, grants uh, marriage equality in uh, 2015. And um, I think dignity, when you talk about the history of queer movements and queer organizing, when you think about what things like the Compton Cafeteria riot in San Francisco in 66 and the Stonewall Rebellion that people are more familiar with in New York in 69 um, were like and were about, when you think about ACT UP blocking streets and uh, people you know, throwing themselves at government buildings, um, when you think about um, the history of the kind of gay sexual underground and the political kinds of political organizing that have come out of that, um, when you think about how many people involved in queer politics and queer organizing have also been involved in sex work and the politics and organizing around sex work. Um, and then you think about this kind of cornerstone movement, cornerstone moment, uh, of the rights movement, quote unquote, being about dignity. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's an obvious disconnect there. Um, and an obvious kind of whitewashing and a kind of covering up of or pushing away of a lot of what a lot of us find the most compelling about um, queer history and queer resistance. And so the putting the best face forward can in some sense, I think, even hide what is potentially really radical or potentially really interesting about queer movements and queer politics and queer organizing and not just kind of it's not just about bringing out the kind of limitations of that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we have, I guess the Andrew Sullivan thing is the episode is the closest we came to um, talking about a quote unquote problematic white gay man, mm -hmm. but we didn't want to make a season that was just about, you know, gay men who were bad because they were insufficiently intersectional. Not that that isn't a problem and not that that isn't a, a real phenomenon. Um, but what we mean by bad is sometimes more complicated than us actually just thinking that they're bad. Mm -hmm. So like the, as we record this, the most recent episode we put out is about, um, Anthony Blunt, Sir Anthony Blunt, who was a, an art historian in the UK and he was keeper of the queen's pictures and he's a, a French Baroque painting expert, um, and was also a Soviet spy. And so, his reputation gets completely trashed in the UK because of it. But one of the things we think about is, you know, if you're a, an idealistic Cambridge undergraduate in the 1930s and you see the choice as being socialism or barbarism, and it's not yet clear what Stalin is or will mean, um, are we confident that he made uncomplicatedly the wrong choice? Mm -hmm. Um and so there's, you know, so that that's kind of the the stuff that we're trying to get into. That was rambly, but yeah, no, I it, watching some of the Mayor Pete discourse, like if he can't even pronounce his name correctly, I'm not going to, I'm not even going to say it. But uh, uh, the, I've been jokingly calling him Pete Buttplug. It's really, I although he doesn't deserve it because butt plugs are way more interesting. I know, though. I mean, that's just degrading to butt plugs. Honestly, it really is. Um, when uh, watching watching some of the defenses of Mayor Pete, it's like we went went back four years with the feminist defense of Hillary Clinton, right? The the this sort of need or 
pressure for um, representation rather than actual sort of political content, just the idea that, oh, well, it's a woman, so we have to get behind her and that kind of stuff. And sort of repeating itself with Mayor Pete, I think not quite to the extreme that it was with Hillary Clinton, um, but uh, certainly the logic is the same. And I find that very um, disturbing. Are, are we going to have to have this conversation every single time, like a new sort of identity uh, representative starts to run for office? But maybe, maybe we do actually have to have the conversation every single time. Yeah, I mean, I keep thinking of Obama, actually, where it's like within living memory, I mean, it was 10 years ago, it's not that long ago, uh, everyone got really excited about a sort of eloquent centrist who had written what is by all accounts a memoir that contains sentences. And, um, <laughs> you know, some of them apparently better sentences than you usually find in a campaign book, which is not a particularly difficult bar to clear, but whatever. Um, and who was short on specifics and everyone got really excited and we saw what happened. We like this happened. It was bad. He was bad. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. wasted a lot of time at best and made things worse at worst. And, um, I mean, I was excited about Obama. I also hadn't seen it happen yet. And I was also 16. So like, it's different and it's, it's a very, very odd. I find it very, very odd and difficult to understand. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think a lot of it does have to do with if you've just trained yourself to think that gay is automatically good, mm -hmm. um, even without knowing. And I understand why a lot of gay men, especially gay men who are older than I am, have done that because you had to overcome. Um, I think you still have to overcome, but um, one used to have to, to a far greater degree, overcome um, at least in daily life in order to be able to function a certain degree of, uh, socially created shame and self hate. Mm -hmm. Um, if you've just trained yourself to think that gay is automatically good, then you see this person and that's unbelievably exciting. And look, he speaks seven languages and look, he's blah, 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 blah. And it doesn't matter that, you know, the, the policy platform seems to be to take whatever is going on and put the word smart in front of it um, and not really change much of anything um, because it's like the, it presents itself as the realization of this narrative, which then I think points to the limits of that narrative in general, which is that the sort of the limits of a certain kind of skim milk representational identity politics in explaining anything about how the world operates or how we make change. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I sort of think is going on. And that's the kind of thinking that Hugh and I started the podcast to try to sort of push back against to say, no, like there are gay has meant a lot of things. Um, it hasn't always been clear what it meant. It hasn't always been clear what the social meaning, um, of sex or love between men was. It hasn't also always been clear that those things went together. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, people who have experienced these feelings have been all kinds of people and have done all kinds of complicated and heroic and sometimes terrible things. Um, I had this sort of conversation the other night. We were doing a, an event about feminism and um, the suggestion was we just need more um, 
more historical examples of, of great women, right? Like just go back and just tell these stories of, um, of, uh, important heroic, et cetera, women throughout time that have been sort of erased from history. And that, that sort of, I noticed in the bookstore, there was, um, a children's book. It's like a children's biography of Coco Chanel. And I was just like, do you think they left out the part where she fucked a Nazi that she, she, she could <laughs> regain control of her company from the Jewish owners? Like, um, probably they left it out, but, um, I don't know. Like it, it seems like the, these, uh, things of representation and historical models and, and so on are important for like five-year-olds maybe when they're dreaming if they can be an astronaut or not. But I, the fact that this, these conversations are carried on into adulthood, um, I find, I find very disturbing. As do I, <laughs> I mean, I don't, you know, and, and, and again, really it's, it's, I, sometimes when I speak honestly about this, I feel that I run the risk of insulting people who I know who think this way and many of whom on other kinds of subjects, I really respect their work or I really respect their thinking. Um, but yeah, I mean, it really just seems like juvenile and obviously dumb. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, but I see it, I think even more broadly in, um, or rather extending also into certain kinds of academic queer thinking. I mean, I think one of the worst trends in queer theory, and I'm speaking very broadly here, and certainly um, this is no, nowhere near about everybody, mm -hmm. but uh, there's a certain kind of queer theory, and I think a certain kind of identity politics work in general, and I don't think identity politics is always bad. Right. Um, but there's a certain kind of identity politics work that has been over the past 20 or 30 years, that's been a sort of search for the ideal political subject. And it's like, okay, well, we're going to find it in. And, and I think it, in some ways it comes from the kind of abandonment, the kind of broad abandonment of the working class by intellectuals in the sort of post 68 movement. But it's like, okay, so it's not them. So we're going to find it somewhere else. It's going to be women or it's going to be gay men. No, wait a minute. No, they're problematic. So it's going to be, um, lesbians. No, it's going to be trans people. No, it's going to be non-binary people. No, it's going to be, and I'm, and I'm not at all arguing against the vital strategic and moral necessity of making political movements as inclusive as possible, mm -hmm. but just saying that politics is not about finding subjects. It's about producing them. Mm -hmm. Like we have to make the, we that we want to make that it's not, it doesn't exist yet. If it existed yet, if the, the subject to transform the world existed yet, it would have done it and it isn't doing it. Um, so, you know, I, I, yeah, I just think that it's not really possible to just kind of look for examples in the past of things to be, mm -hmm. but instead more interesting and important to look to the past for, ideas that can be recuperated or for um, political projects that were failures, but that failed interestingly. Um, what can we learn from those? What can we take with us now? Um, what do we need to leave there? Um, those are the questions that motivate a lot of my thinking and my work, as opposed to just thinking about, um, you know, 
XYZ was gay, colon, Twitter thread. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then on the other side, of course, then we have um, sort of cancellation culture, um, which I don't... I don't think it actually works. Um, I mean, Louis C.K. Is, is is doing gigs and that sort of thing. But uh, but this idea of just um, ridding somebody from your mind and the, and the conversation reemerges again and again. I was like, well, what do we do with the art? What do we do with the uh, the Woody Allen films or whatever? Um, what what do we do? Um, yeah, I guess as though whether I listen to a Michael Jackson album or watch a Woody Allen movie is the most crucial political or ethical choice I will ever make, which I just don't think it is. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a very sort of consumerist way of, um, of thinking about badness or evil. It's, do I consume this product made by an evil person? What does that do? What does that say? Whatever. Um, but yeah, just a sort of animosity towards complexity seems to be, um, uh, or ambivalence or anything really. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But I, and I also don't want to adopt an anti-complexity attitude then when thinking about these social formations. I mean, when for something like, for example, Mutar Kelly, I really understand the kind of social basis and support the demands of that campaign. I mean, this is a situation where there is an ongoing horrible situation and it is being directly financed by people going to these concerts and buying these albums. And so the political demand is made, stop doing this thing that is directly supporting this other thing. And I really get that. Mm -hmm. um, and that I think is really different to me than the question of should, should we or shouldn't we cancel Michael Jackson, where it's like, first of all, he's dead. He's dead. The, the horrible things that you know, I probably believe happened, um, have happened and are not ongoing. Um, listening to a Michael Jackson album is not in any way underwriting the continuation of those actions. Um, and then how, how are we going to cancel Michael Jackson? How are we going to go back and remove his influence from the history of pop music? I don't, I don't see how it's even, a, even possible to do. And then it just turns into this strange conversation where instead of talking about like what are the structures in society that allow people to accumulate such a monstrous amount of power that they can get away with doing shit like this for years and years and years um the conversation becomes about what should i do with my cds which doesn't mean anything to anybody i mean it's not it, i like again i just think about like the people where this is really the only thing that's in their head. I just wonder what planet they're living on. And I, again, I don't mean that to be insulting. I just honestly don't know. Um, yeah. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, that's, I don't know if that's an interesting entryway into a conversation, but like what is, okay. So I, I've seen it specifically in a feminist context, right. Of, um, of seeing how conversations have changed around um, women in the last, you know, 20, 30 years um, as sort of women were allowed more prominent positions of power and seeing how that worked and seeing what they did with it. And, and of course, like the, 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 the line of if a woman was in charge of this uh, we wouldn't be having this problem uh, has been used for, uh, for 
Facebook, even though it was a woman essentially running Facebook, uh, and has been used for, uh, the country and, uh, all sorts of um, different industries and problems of the world. If a woman was doing this, um, we wouldn't be having this problem uh, because women are naturally more sort of, you know, empathetic and compassionate and all these other wonderful good things that women supposedly are, but are not. Um, And then I don't know how to break somebody out of that way of thinking, because I know psychologically how it gets set up because, you know, um, living in a culture that essentially hates women, uh, you have to create this sort of, uh, counter narrative in order to survive that a lot of times, but that at some point it has to be discarded. It has to be, um, examined and thought of without sort of having a sort of identity crash, or move through maybe yeah i mean like I, I don't know it seems possible to hold in my head both the idea that not every woman in power is extraordinary or is doing great things or has great politics or whatever and that there are probably some qualities that have been traditionally coded as feminine and discarded or suppressed or pushed away that are and would be politically useful like it seems possible to me to 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 have both of those things in my head and i just think we're asked now to decide about so many things so quickly um so many sort of micro cultural moments that pop up and there's like two sides and you have to pick one or else you're not kind of legible in certain kinds of conversations Mm -hmm. Um, that I think it just makes it difficult to think yes. And um, at, you know, I mean, it, it, this comes up in my own, so in my own academic research. So I'm an MA student um, in history and, and working towards a PhD. And I write about um, a really interesting and very problematic, and I mean problematic as a criterion of interest and not just as a dismissal, although I do mean, I mean, it is very problematic in both senses of that word, um, sort of trend of um, mostly white, gay, primitivist identification. Um, over the kind of first part of the 20th century as gay identities um, across Western Europe and in the U.S. are beginning to kind of form and accrete. Um, And the thing that I often end up thinking as I read some of these sources is, yes, and, as I said before, you know, yes, this is based on a really kind of flawed anthropological understanding of, um, for example, uh, Navajo people in the case of some of the activists I look at in the American West in the mid 20th century. Um, and that analysis was the only thing available to them at the time or the best thing available to them at the time. And I understand how that white gay appropriation of those cultural forms continued to do harm. And I see how it pointed the way past its own blind spots. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I just think evaluating things 
in a more complicated way is really essential if we want to think about how to approach everything in the world, which is flawed, mm -hmm. and yet which will have to contain the seeds of any kind of change we want to make. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I think there's a way to do that without dismissing urgent claims for justice by oppressed and marginalized people. And I think there's a way to do it without apologizing for racism, misogyny, and homophobia, and et cetera. Mm -hmm. and yeah, I mean, I just think thinking more complicatedly, um, especially in a sort of evaluative sense, and especially about people, um, is often interesting mm -hmm. and important in that in that kind of space. Yeah, and I, and I think it becomes easy to sort of blame this on social media uh, in, a, in a sense of like you're responding to things sort of immediately as they're happening and there's a limited amount of space and so there's a sort of simplification. But I, I also see these sorts of um, these ways of thinking in, you know, academic work. Um, so it, it, I don't think that the, oh, it's just Twitter or, or oh, it's just Facebook. I, I really think that it's ingrained in something deeper. Well, yeah, I mean, that to me seems like, you know, people who want to blame YouTube for the spread of the far right. Sure, I mean, it's yeah. like, <laughs> like we can both think that, you know, these platforms are also the expressions of the horrible social conditions that are producing these horrible politics. Um, and realize that because of that, taking the platform away isn't going to change the underlying social conditions. I mean, that's the, that's the kind of meaning of having politics, I think. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, I really, sometimes when I, when I speak about this stuff, I really do feel like I'm being incredibly dismissive and I don't mean to be. It's just, I, it is really astonishing how much of this stuff seems to be really like difficult to talk about even. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll stop bringing feminism into it, uh, in a minute, but I do see like when, we, when we're talking about like, um, uh, bad things that women have done, there's this immediate sense of like, you, you go girl, like you murder that guy or you cause that war or whatever. Um, like a, a wanting to, uh, to celebrate a female serial killer or whatever to, uh, to immediately sort of, um, contextualize her as a, as a brave transgressor rather than like a murderer. Um, and it just seems like very sort of self-protective of, um, investing too much of your sense of self into this one part of yourself, this sort of baseline identity. Um, and then seeing an attack on that as being an attack uh, on you and yeah anyway that's my last well, yeah, I mean, comment living in living in like capitalism is horrible and terrifying and you constantly feel i constantly feel um precarious and insecure and unsure of how to identify and i think it's really tempting um to just kind of move into something um and feel like you have some place to live and feel like that place that you have to live is really righteous. Um, the one more thing I'll add maybe is just to say that you were saying to, you keep saying, you know, to bring feminism into this, <laughs> um, which I actually, I don't think it makes sense to talk about gay politics or gay liberation or queer politics or queer liberation without talking about feminism. Cause I don't actually think they're different. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the, I mean, the, the 
the origins of the kind of Western prohibitions against um, homosexual love and desire um, are the same as the origins of the sort of Western taboos and prohibitions against reproductive control. Um, and it all has to do with uh, labor reproduction and the transition to capitalism. And so, if, you know, it, it's not, I don't really think it's different. And actually one of the biggest flaws of the gay politics that we bring out on the show, I think, um, are people who try to separate those things and are people who try to somehow create a world in which there's going to be gay liberation without feminism or a kind of anti-feminist or misogynist uh, gay liberation. Um, and that is how you end up with Ernst Krem, the Nazi, and that's how you end up with Andrew Sullivan. Um, so can I ask why um, the focus, at least so far in season one, has just been on on men? Well, our joke on the show is it's because cis men are definitionally the worst. Um, it was an, it was a conversation that we had, the names that came to us at the beginning, um, as we first kind of started thinking about these themes were male names and we didn't want to have a situation where we stuck two women on in order to have done it. You know, um, we are not at all opposed to opening up to include women and to include people of trans experience, whether they're trans feminine or trans masculine, um, on future seasons. Um, and we didn't, I mean, I think if we were doing a show like Eric Marcus's making gay history, which is a great show, it's a fantastic podcast of oral histories with a lot of sort of gay historical, um, activists. Um, if we were doing something like that, and if we were profiling kind of heroes of the movement, I think there would have been a really urgent, um, again, moral and strategic need to make sure that that group was sort of relentlessly inclusive. Um, and in this show, especially since, because we're talking about um, bad people or evil people or complicated people, we felt that a little bit less. Um, and so we didn't, we didn't go that route in the first season, but uh, we certainly are not opposed to it. And there are uh, a lot of evil lesbians in history too. <laughs> This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.